Hey guys, Press Gallery host Emma Graney here, just with another quick reminder to subscribe wherever you podcast. Uh, we are on um, all kinds of places, iTunes, Google Play, etc., etc., Stitcher. Um, feel free to leave us a review as well. We would love that very much. And if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, or want to send me photos of your dogs or cats or uh, travel plans, we can go over those together. That's fine. Uh, email me at egraney at postmedia.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Emma L. Graney. And my DMs are open, so that's fun. Enjoy this week's episode of The Press Gallery. Hello and welcome to The Press Gallery, the Edmonton Journal's politics podcast. I am your host, provincial affairs reporter Emma Graney. It is Friday, April 13, 2018, and this is the Turn Off the Taps edition. With me today... My legislative colleague, my legislative colleague, Claire Clancy. Hello, Emma. Happy ah, Friday the 13th. I've never realized your your name is such a tongue twister. It's, it's, a, it, it's yeah. a whole trixodecophobia thing. It's an alliteration. Thing. <laughs> yeah. Paula Simons, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Emma Graney. Excellent. And Graham Thompson, you Just got here. Just made it, oh man, an hour in traffic this morning because it snowed in Edmonton and people didn't know how to drive. Oh, man. Well, it's April. It is April, and it's April 13th, yeah, Friday the 13th, and it snowed, and traffic was a nightmare. Yeah. Getting in. When I opened, because uh, you told me that you were running late because the traffic was a nightmare, and I opened the curtain of the bedroom and just let out a long string of expletives about the white stuff falling from the sky. You, see, you notice that this, this correlates entirely with Emma Graney becoming a Canadian citizen. <laughs> We've never had a winter like this. This is a record-setting number. I think it's 168 days without going above zero. And I am looking for causal correlations here. <laughs> I am not the reason. It's not my fault. 168 days, eh? 168 <laughs> days without going above zero. Yeah. I don't know if that's... I mean, during the day. But like, we've been below zero in our lows for 168 ah, days. there we go. Yeah, it's disgusting. Uh, Thank you, Emma. So, <laughs> so today it will be... A surprise to absolutely nobody, though we're going to be talking about the latest in the pipeline saga, as Graham called it in his column this week, which was actually a very good word, Graham. It described it very nicely. You've got talent. There we go. You might make um, it as a journalist. <laughs> and the Premier's taking a trip. <laughs> well, this is, where we, this is where we left off last week, right? I mean, I think I, I had to stop and just remember that we have not done a podcast since Kinder Morgan made its announcement. Oh, we haven't. Because that was Sunday. Ooh, that was Sunday. That feels like weeks ago. Okay, we're also going to talk about the Bill 9 debate, which is the uh, bubble zones around abortion clinics um, <laughs> and the debate around that, or lack of it. And you know what? That'll probably be enough, to be honest, to get us through this <laughs> half hour. Let's move right along. Graham, we got to see each other on Sunday. That was fun, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. Like last Sunday, we got this emergency call. Actually, I got a heads up that Kinder Morgan was doing a news release. And yeah. I think, good news or bad news? We got silence. texts, right, from the Premier's office. That's right, office, Premier's yeah. office saying, heads up, Premier will be having a, uh, she's canceled her trip to New York, having like a last minute emergency And Graham's like, not conference. the trip. Uh, not the trip. Not what, the trip. What will I talk about next week? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, of course, um, Kinder Morgan has a news release. Really hard edge to it, uh, blaming British Columbia basically and saying we're going to scrap this entire pipeline project by May 31st unless we have certainty it's going to go ahead. Then you have Notley has a news conference that says basically if we have to, we'll invest in that pipeline to make sure it, it goes ahead and to uh, 
reassure investors. Then immediately after she left the stage, up comes Jason Kenney and says, yes, I will support uh, putting money into a pipeline project. And it was and just incredible. And our jaws hit the floor. Yeah, it was one thing after another. And of course, the news just kept on coming this week with Notley saying if necessary, she would buy the entire project, $7.4 mm-hmm. $7. billion worth. Let's buy it. <laughs> and of course, now uh, moving ahead, we've got... Um, a an emergency meeting, I guess you can call it that, with the uh, Prime Minister coming back from his trip to Peru. Mm-hmm. Before he goes to Europe, he's going to stop in Ottawa on Sunday. He's invited uh, our Premier, Rachel Notley, and the B.C. Premier, John Horgan, in for a meeting to f- try and figure out this um, this morass. He's going to need to bring a, a big timeout corner, I reckon, for that meeting, so I can just sit quietly in the corner, because I don't know, it might get a little bit heated. And Nolly said she doesn't have any firm plans as to what will be talked about at the meeting. But um, <laughs> oh yeah, they're just going to discuss Peruvian. <laughs> they just and they don't know. Etiquette. Apparently, there's uh, nothing in the works as to what the federal government will do. But obviously, everyone's expecting an announcement Sunday of some kind, saying you know this is the next step in in how we'll get the pipeline built. I was speaking to a very angry family member this morning while I was out <laughs> walking my dog. He called to rant in my headset. Um, why isn't Trudeau doing something? I said, well, what is it exactly, since you're a lawyer, brother of mine, what is it exactly <laughs> that you want that you want him to do? And this, this is the problem, right? Because British Columbia, it's the rope-a-dope kind of t- technique that they're doing, right? I mean, British Columbia hasn't, it hasn't so much that they've done a thing, mm. it's that they're not, that they're not embracing this, right? I mean, what has John Horgan actually done legally that the government could challenge? He hasn't really done anything except to create an environment uh, of economic uncertainty. And I don't quite, I mean, I, 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 like pretty much all Albertans, want the government to do something federally. I'm just not quite sure what it is. I mean, Jason Kenney keeps calling upon them to declare this a national, a project of national interest. It's already a project of natural interest. I mean, Jim Carr, the natural resources minister, said it about eight times in his press release that he mm-hmm. put out on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to know what legal recourse the federal government has as opposed to political recourse. And Jason Kenney too, um, he, the UCP has tried to do an emergency, they did an emergency debate earlier this week in the House. Um, it was actually a funny day because uh, the Energy Minister, Margaret McCaig-Boyd, she put a motion saying, okay, I want to debate this motion, um, calling on the federal government to do something and the BC government to pull their socks up. I'm obviously paraphrasing, that is not exactly what this motion said. But then Jason Kenney jumped to his feet and said, no, uh, under such and such a rules, I would like an emergency debate on the exact same topic. So and he, he actually got it. He did because of how things work in the ledge. So it ended up just being an emergency debate in which they all debated on the exact same side of the freaking debate <laughs> that they all want the pipeline and they want BC to get on board and they want the feds to do something. And it was just like, why are you all debating something when you all think the exact same thing? It doesn't make any sense. So Jason Kenney would like, uh, they had another um, motion this week as well to try and push the NDP to push the federal Liberals to cut off transfer payments to BC for uh, like an infrastructure was the big one there. They got like $4.1 billion or something along mm-hmm. those lines recently. And he wants to see the federal government cut off that money until BC pulls its socks up 
and uh, lets the pipeline happen. No, but Paul's got a really good point, and the, the BC hasn't really done anything in a sense. It's not when when BC did do something that was that threat, the point five in January, where they said um, we want you know, basically we have the jurisdiction over. Um, stopping Alberta from shipping more bitumen through the pipeline. That was something, and Alberta could then stomp on it and say, you cannot do that, uh, BC, we are going to stop buying wine from you. Well, and even then, BC didn't do it. They just said they were going to do but it. But at least they said they were going to do something in terms of a, 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 a actual decision by BC is that we have the authority to do this. Now they're going to put that into the courts, they think. We haven't actually seen that wording about jurisdiction. That may be the way to go. The problem is mm. it, it, it takes too long. You may need a court decision to say overtly, look, BC, you cannot um, stop a pipeline you cannot um, dictate to Alberta what can go in that pipeline. And then it gives Horgan an out to say to his supporters in the Green Party and environmentalists, look, the law has spoken. We will not break the law. We just got this pipeline. We'll, we'll get built now. He needs some sort of out. Even though, of course, we've seen this week uh, stories from B.C. where the B.C. government admits yeah. it never had the authority. It knows it has doesn't have the jurisdiction to try and stop this pipeline. So... They are in a quandary, though. Horgan needs, to me, a face-saving way to step down and say, yes, a pipeline can go ahead. He's under too much pressure right now at home to keep on digging in his heels and doing what Paul is saying, that sort of that kind of um, passive-aggressive dance he's doing where he's encouraging people to stand up against the pipeline without him actually doing anything overtly to stop the pipeline. Yeah, and then the question the question is, like, what will really change before May 31st, though? Because this is standoff has been going that's on for months. So if that now that Kinder Morgan has that deadline spelled out, I mean, that's the issue. May 31st could come and go without anything really changing. Yeah, you know, and you sort of have to wonder, then, is the only answer for people in British Columbia who support the pipeline, and there are quite a few of them, uh, is, is that where the NDP and the federal liberals have to exert their pressure. I mean, I've seen a really interesting debate play out on Twitter this week amongst First Nations in British Columbia, uh, because quite a lot of the First Nations along the pipeline route have signed off on this and were, you know, embracing the opportunity for economic development that that pipeline represented. Other First Nations groups, a lot of them, frankly, not along the pipeline route, have been opposed to it. So it's int- it's been really interesting to see, you know, First Nations activists in Ontario saying, you know, this pipeline is terrible because it's an affront to, to Native sovereignty, whereas uh, some nations right along the path of the pipeline are saying, no, no, no. Uh, in fact, uh, we're we're fully on board with this. So, you know, is there a way to leverage the people within British Columbia who support the pipeline for a wide variety of economic uh, and social reasons? I, I, I don't know if that's, if that's a possible leverage point to say, look, the narrative that's being spun about this, that everybody in British Columbia is opposed, that this is a terrible uh, environmental disaster waiting to happen, you know, in, in some ways, it's really unfortunate. The narrative has been sort of spelled out as, you know, bad Alberta that wants to get its bluchy, yucky bitumen. Uh, <laughs> ooh, bitumen. People are like, ooh, ooh, ooh. It's, it's, so, it's funny, right? I mean, bitumen, people are like, well, it would be better if you refined it and then you just pipe the oil. And I'm thinking, no, no, it wouldn't. How is that? How is that any different from a pipeline perspective? I mean, poor bitumen. It's sort of, it's like, this, it just, <laughs> people, like is it because it, it's like thick and oozy that people... I think the point is they're afraid <laughs> if it spills. The pipeline isn't really the big issue. It's, see, it's a tanker traffic off the West Coast and you get tankers full of bitumen. And if it sinks, you, you have a real problem cleaning it up. 
at least that's the conventional wisdom. It's harder to clean up bitumen than it is an oil spill. So it's not so much the pipeline they're, they're opposed to. It's the increased tanker traffic from ships that are ah. uh, reg- registered in China that are coming here and potentially uh, sinking off the West Coast and causing another Exxon Valdez. I think it's interesting to see the federal government, though, kind of losing on all sides here because, I mean, in B.C., people think Trudeau is is kind of stepping over the line, those who are against the pipeline. And then in Alberta, um, you know, last night outside the Alberta legislature, mm-hmm. we had the rally. Um, there was a pro-pipeline rally. Uh, a few hundred people showed up, and um, MP Emerjeet Sohi spoke kind of on behalf of the federal government, and there was so much hostility the towards him oh, yeah. in that oh, yeah. crowd. And they, you know, he was speaking in support of the pipeline and people were booing him because he was from the federal government. Go back to Ottawa! Resign! <laughs> yeah, everyone was really, really yeah, getting stuck and, into him. They were getting more And you should not have been yelling that. <laughs> <laughs> but they were yelling more at Sohi than they were at those um, those anti-pipeline protesters, one of whom had a big flag and had his face covered. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised by that hostility towards uh, Amarjeet Sohi. I didn't expect that. Really? No, because I mean, Sohi's always been a very popular figure locally. I'm guessing that Amarjeet Sohi wasn't expecting that degree of personal hostility towards him either. I think that's probably the first time as a politician he's ever experienced something like that. Mm. I did meet the cutest puppy in the world yesterday at the rally, so it was a win for Made me. Made it all worth it. It really did, yeah, really did. It was cold. Ugh. Thanks for those gloves. But of course, <laughs> speaking of trips to Ottawa, so this weekend we've got uh, <laughs> the Premier meeting with Trudeau and Horgan. Of course, Graham, the question is going to be... Graham just wants to talk about travel. Trips. Yeah, I know. I <laughs> Graham, know. Did, you, did you need a break, Graham? Did you need well, to go somewhere? Away, I traveled a lot this morning and uh, <laughs> long. Didn't get very far in that snow. Anyway... Um, the question is going to be, what can they do on Sunday? And this is a, a big yeah. issue for Trudeau. But getting back to Paula's point, he's kind of in a no-win situation. Like, what can he do? But he has to do something. If they meet on Sunday and nothing's achieved and they go off their, their way, separate ways, nothing is done, this looks so bad on Trudeau. Because there is an issue here about BC even passively, aggressively, um, or covertly tripping up a federally approved project. Mm -hmm. It's a problem for Trudeau moving forward because it does look like he is um, letting a province dictate a federal responsibility. No, I think my favorite response so far has been uh, the people who are now calling for Alberta to separate. I mean, Derek, Derek, Derek Philbrandt um, on, on the weekend was starting like, oh, you know, you have to do, you know, someone has to do something before, you know, Alberta might blow kind of, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing again, but I mean, <laughs> Philbrandt was sort of tweeting along these like, you know, we're going to take our, we're going to take our province and go home. Um, and people were like, oh, well, if we were our own country, we'd have a pipeline to Tidewater by now. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. no, we wouldn't. Really? <laughs> because, because then you'd have to get your pipeline through a foreign country. Do you think that would be easier than trying to get it? I mean, I, I, mean, I, I understand that we are frustrated, but, you know, short of the kind of earthquake that causes British Columbia to fall into the sea. We don't have easy access to tide water. We have to play nicely a little bit of the time and a little bit of hardball if you want to get the thing done. But saying that we're going to separate and that will make it easier to get our... I guess it would be easier to ship our oil internationally if internationally we're Saskatchewan. (laughs) (laughs) Derek Fildebrand's constituency does have a lot of separatists, probably the most in the province. So (laughs) that may be why. So let's move along to the uh, Bill 9 debate, which is the bubble bill, which would create a a 50-meter buffer zone around abortion clinics in Alberta. Uh, We did talk about this last week, but there have been developments this week, haven't there, Clancy? (laughs) 
basically the UCP um, during debate. Uh, Angela Pitt gave a speech talking about um, kind of the importance of free speech importance of free speech as it relates to this legislation which has been one of the arguments against it um and you know then ucp caucus members proceeded to walk out of the debate yep there were about not many of them champions of free speech they (laughs) (laughs) so they got up and they walked out so it ended up being and i kind of went up to the chamber to see what was going on and uh i've on the right on the right hand side from my perspective looking down you've got the NDP side there were 29 MLAs they had there from the Alberta party we had Greg Clark and Karen McPherson and then we had the entire empty UCP section nothing but there was one folder that was left open on a desk there were four empty coffee mugs and and a tumbleweed blowing down the aisle (laughs) and when we asked um, afterwards when we asked Pitt uh, the next day kind of why did everyone walk out on debate um, you know she said it's a kind of I'm paraphrasing but said it's a political trap that the UCP won't fall into and that's and that's why they won't debate it thump as they fell right in but no but that see but to the CBC she said that they walked out because of the horrible heckling the horrible horrible heckling and so I went back and I listened to the yeah. audio and I watched the video and I don't hear any horrible, horrible heckling. Because there wasn't. I mean, so, I mean, I mean what, a, what an absurd thing to say. Because A, let's assume for a moment that there had been some heckling. This is a debate about bubble zones that protect women and health workers who are being harassed by protesters. So who are having the most horrific kind of nasty abuse shouted at them, who are ha- being preached at. As they, as they try to get to work or try to, to get medical care. And so your argument is, we are such delicate little flowers that we couldn't stand a little heckling in the house, but that, you know, but we're fine with, with women having the most vile abuse screamed at them. Or your other interpretation is, this is just a lie because there was no heckling and you had clearly choreographed and planned in advance the walkout. So you can't claim that that was like some spontaneous thing that people heard them being mean to Angela. So they all jumped to their feet en masse and they all walked out in protest. I mean, I mean, it stretches credulity to the limits of, of the human imagination. Of course they planned this. You know, that they weren't going to fall into the thing. You're saying they fell into the trap. I would argue they, they got around this. And I, listen, you did a great column on this. We did an editorial um, as well saying that these guys are moral cowards. Ethically, they took the low road. I completely agree. But politically, it's probably the smartest thing that they could have done is just avoid this because this is not going to be a big issue a month from now or a year from now when the election comes mm-hmm. up. If they had debated this, then it'd be on the record and the NDP could throw it back at them. Right now, they just ran for the exits. And Literally ran. I was standing <laughs> in the ledge in the rotunda and uh, I decided that rather than doing inns, which is usually upstairs, I was just going to stand by the door and grab them as they come in because that way they can't avoid you because usually they can kind of avoid journalists a little bit. So I was chasing them. I was chasing UCP members up and down those stairs and then up and down the stairwell and then I got into an elevator with Jason Kenny, who didn't seem overly pleased with it um, just to try and get them on the record about this and Angela Pitt as well. I stopped her separate from the main scrum and I said to her, well... Okay, fair enough. That's what you're saying, that this is a political trap um, and a a big game by the NDP, then you're not going to play it. Sarah Hoffman, the health minister, says that this legislation came about 
because the Kensington Clinic, an abortion clinic in Calgary, contacted them a year ago and said, hey, we'd really like you to do something about the harassment and the verbal harassment that our workers face and our patients face. So Hoffman says they've been working on this for a year. And I said to uh, Angela Pitt, well, have you contacted the Kensington Clinic? And she said, no. I went, oh, well, you know, Hoffman says it's a problem. Why not contact them? And she said to me, oh, we know that uh, the problems that and the issues that the workers face in these um, in these clinics. And I said, oh, yeah, what issues are those? Well, harassment, intimidation. And I said, no, 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 no wait a second. So you're no, you know that they're being harassed and intimidated and you're not willing to vote for a bill that or even debate a bill that will stop that happening. And she went, um harassment laws currently in place are totally fine and we just hope the police are uh, sticking to them and enforcing them. And the UCP has also, a few members have come out with the line of, like, my constituents don't see this as an issue. Well, I, I, you know, what are the, I, and I have to confess that when we talked about this last week, I did take a somewhat more cynical read of it, that it, that it was setting a trap. But I followed this logic through to its point, which in one of the things that I hadn't thought about last week is that just in recent months, the Alberta government has licensed for use uh, a drug, uh, Mifigamiso, that makes it possible to have an abortion without going to a clinic. It's a long overdue thing. It's been legal in other jurisdictions for years. Not only is the Alberta government allowed putting it on the formulary, but the Alberta government is covering it for free. So you don't need to pay for this treatment. That means that any pharmacy that stocks it and any doctor that prescribes it could be targeted by anti-abortion activists. And I think that's the other reason that this bubble zone legislation is timely, because you can't, it's, we only have two clinics. And it's true that those two clinics could go and get court injunctions to keep protesters away. But now you've created a, a situation, a scenario where any pharmacy could be targeted. And you can't ask every single pharmacy or every single GP who's writing a prescription to go and get a separate court injunction. Uh, I think the NDP could have advanced that as an argument, but I advanced it in my column, uh, and I'm doing it here again now. Uh, so, I mean, the, I, I don't know that I agree with Graham. I mean, I think Kenny, this was an opportunity that he could have had a free vote, that he could have said, you know, some of my members are... Oh, are, it, are, it was, it was are a free pro- vote. Yes. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. Can it be it, a free vote, yeah. Well, no, it will be a free vote, and they can abstain. And the thing, but the thing, listen, <laughs> I, I agree. Abstain. Will. There's no such thing I, I agree that abstain. I, uh, well, yes, yes, you can abstain by not showing up or just sitting down and not actually voting. The, um, I agree with you. The law is necessary. Um, the, the, the Kenny and his caucus are being cowards on this. I completely agree on that. There's no argument here. But politically... Yeah, politically, this is, it's smart. This is a smart move for them. Just because the thing is, again, this will not be a big issue next week or a month from now or next year, especially during the election campaign. It's like on GSAs, you know, they, they did fight that. You know, yeah, the gay straight alliances thing, and they did fight they that. They did fight that when they lost. That was it. They said, we're not going to revisit this. Mm-hmm. And it's a case where they want all this stuff not to be an issue next election. They just want it to be about pipelines and the carbon tax and the climate leadership plan. They. Again, we're we're arguing two different things here. To me, and you could argue, yes, he should have stood up there and fought against this bill or spoke against this bill or or got involved in the debate. It would have given the NDP ammunition to go after him on his record, on being an abortion activist when he was younger and his votes on the federal um, uh, arena when he was a federal um, member. I think he just didn't want that. And politically, they've done the smart thing ethically. It's reprehensible. And it's, it's moral cowardice, I agree, but politically, they had no other option but to do what they're doing now. And this way, you don't get uh, 
maybe some enthusiastic UCP backbenchers having any bozo eruptions on the backbench as they debate the bill, which was, of course, something that the UCP is very keen to avoid coming into an election. And maybe getting them to just not debate the bill is the only way to stop that happening. So he maybe he's, okay, you can say <laughs> I don't he, know he, that he, for sure. I'm not right. saying. I'm just saying. Or he's gagged. <laughs> you know, he gagged this entire caucus out of free vote. Um, yeah. Fine. Free vote. But again, Paula <laughs> rolled her oh, eyes. Yes, yes. Yes. Very. You, you are free to vote as long as you abstain. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you can, it's like the Model T. The car can make any, color, any color as long as it's black. <laughs> Okay, so let's move along to our regular segment, Good Stuff from the Gallery, in which we recommend things that we have read or seen or listened to lately that we think you, dear listeners, might also enjoy. Clancy, what do you have for us, mate? Um, I'm going to recommend... Is it a podcast? No. Oh, uh, what? Just That's got to be the first time ever. Yeah, I'm gonna, I was almost going to recommend... Um, I'll do a little shout-out to it, Watch the Tea with RuPaul, <laughs> but I won't, okay? Um, I'm going <laughs> to... No, you won't. Great <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I love, I love great podcast, but we're not mentioning yeah. it. Um, I'm recommending uh, a Netflix series. It's about six hours, and it's amazing. It's called Wild Wild Country. <gasps> so and good. And, yeah, I binge-watched it in the last few days, and it's about the... Um, Rajneeshi kind of cult in the 1980s taking over a small town of Antelope in Oregon and all of the legal um, battles that uh, that come from that and I'm not going to give too much away because it's just a roller coaster ride of ridiculous things happening. It's so good. It's probably one of the best documentary series I've ever seen. It's fantastic. So it's, it's not, not a drama, it's actually It's a, a documentary. Doc- yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's so interesting. Oh. Uh, Paula. I have been listening to a really, uh, really cool sort of double feature on CBC's ideas, uh, the trial of Sir John A. Macdonald, which sounds oh. like it could have been like a bad undergraduate thing, <laughs> but it's it's re- it's really really well done. Um, uh, it features, I mean, real trial lawyers and uh, a retired Supreme Court Justice Ian Binney as the judge. And they are looking specifically at McDonald's conduct uh, during the first Red, Red River Rebellion, uh, putting it on trial uh, as though it was a war crime for trials against hu- uh, uh, crimes against humanity. Uh, and it is absolutely riveting. Uh, and as I say, I thought at first this is going to be like sort of like a social justice gimmick, ret- retconning history. You're screwing but your face <laughs> up just at the thought of that. <laughs> but but no, this is it's absolutely fascinating with real trial lawyers hmm. and a real judge uh, and real standards of what what counts as evidence in a in a criminal court, uh, and as a way of understanding that part of our history, uh, just so engaging. Nice. I'm going to recommend a book that I just finished. It's called Once Upon a Time in Russia, uh, The Rise of the Oligarchs, a story, a true story of ambition, wealth, betrayal, and murder. Murder. Uh, Yuri, my husband, actually picked this book up, I think, in an airport when we were on our way to Jordan and was reading it on the plane, just going, what? What? And it, you do. You read it. It's fantastic. So, yeah, basically, it's exactly as it says. It's um, a really interesting kind of true history-ish kind of novel by uh, Ben Mesrich and it tells you all about the rise of the oligarchs and all their wealth and it it kind of centers around one particular guy and then Putin comes in and how 
the political machinations of trying to get um, people elected and then they supported Putin and brought him in to be the head of the intelligence agency and then he went and screwed them over completely and how they had to leave England and, and just the incredible wealth that they had and the yachts and the, the jets and the helicopters and stuff. It's fantastic read and I highly recommend it. Graham, take us home. Uh, speaking of helicopters, um, I sent you a link to this. It's a Wired magazine. It's a really interesting piece on a crash. It was last month. A helicopter crashed in New York, and uh, passengers oh, yeah. all drowned. Yeah. The, the pilot got out, passengers drowned, and um, it's talking about how the, p- the passengers, it's part of a new trend in helicopter tourism. People are tethered in the helicopter. The doors are open, and they can lean out and take pictures. Yeah. People are leaning out. Uh, so it's actually tethered. But they weren't really showing the safety how to get untethered, and they had a knife to cut it, but no one knew where the knife is. The knife actually wouldn't actually cut the tether. And this reporter did a really good job of um, not only looking at what happened. Uh, the pilots were complaining to the owners about uh, the safety issue. The owners said basically, shut up and stop being so negative. Uh, the author also goes through the actual training they do for the military on helicopter crashes in, in a pool where they have a mock-up of the, um, the cabin. Anyway, it's really sad because um, these people were in the helicopter starts to sink and they can't get out and they're alive oh. and the, 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 it, it wasn't like a crash where it crashed into the water and they're all killed it landed and also it, land, it, it crashed because one of the tethers people were leaning back and forward the, the, the rope the tether actually accidentally shut off the fuel valve oh. it hit the emergency cut off to the fuel valve so that tether caused the the helicopter to lose its, its power. It lands, though, safely on the water, and it starts to sink, and they can't get out because oh, they're tethered. Oh, that is brutal. It's a really well-done piece. Wow. I, I, I mean, I remember hearing about that crash, but I did not realize any of this. That's horrifying. Yeesh. And they're all like, young people, 20s and 30s. They're all healthy people who just were tethered. And the pilot tried to get one of them out, and he, just, he couldn't because it began to sink. It goes upside down. And uh, they couldn't, and he tried, and they couldn't get back. And the thing is, again, the pilots were warning the owners about the safety issue. Brutal. So the FAA has canceled right now um, all the, uh, in the U.S., you cannot take a helicopter tourist ride with the tethers until they figure out what actually happened. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. Clancy, Paula Simons, Graham Thompson, who is now giving me, pulling faces at me. Thanks, Graham. Dear listeners, join us this time again next week on the Press Gallery. Stop it, Graham. <laughs>